Hello, I'm Daryl Root, and this is Camp Ridgers News Folder 19 Podcast. News of interest to everyone under the sun, so get out of your house and join them. Or not. Either way, stay tuned for 19 minutes of sense, sarcasm, and occasional wit. Or maybe just one of them. In all seriousness, don't forget to visit the sponsor's website at CampRidger.net. Camp Ridger's hand-blended seasonings are all salt-free, so you can salt to your own personal preference. Salt-free also means those on restricted diets can use them without worry. That's CampRidger.net. R-I-D-G-E-R. Ridger. Give them a try. With that out of the way, I'm going to take a sip or two of my chai tea and get straight to the news. Number one. Like Tom Brady a few years ago, Republican Jim Jordan suspended his bid last week to serve as Speaker, only to come out of retirement for a third vote. And, like Tom Brady's uniform number, Jordan's IQ must be 12. Why? Because after getting more negative votes the second time around, he got even more negative votes the third time around. Republicans have now kicked him out of consideration. When will a GOP jabroniism stop? So the question you might be asking is this. Why isn't the acting speaker automatically given the role of speaker of the house so things can actually get done? Ask someone who actually wants Congress to get things done. Personally, it's usually better if they don't get things done. Why? Because when they do, it's almost always made worse. At one point, Jordan had decided to back Republican Patrick McHenry, who is the acting speaker, to fill the role on a temporary basis. Which brings up another question. Why does everyone assume that the future speaker needs 217 Republican votes? Is there not a single Democrat who will vote for whoever the speaker nominee is? Democrats say they want to get things done, and they blame Republicans for the speaker mess. But, all 212 of those idiots keep voting for Hakeem Jeffries, a Democrat in a GOP-controlled House. So no, Democrats aren't helping either. Not only that, but the option of McHenry, which some Democrats claim they might support, despite votes to the contrary thus far, would allow lawmakers to get back to work. Democrat President Joe Biden is expected to ask Congress this week to approve as much as $60 billion for Ukraine and $10 billion for Israel, and funding for U.S. government operations is also due to expire in less than a month. That's more debt to the already 1.7 trillion, that's trillion with a capital T, so far this year. For those living under a rock, a small group of Republicans using their combined IQ, which is seemingly equal to Biden's age, 
ousted McCarthy from the Speaker's chair on October 3rd, and Chamber's number two Republican, Steve Scalise, dropped his leadership bid after he was unable to line up the 217 votes. As an independent who leans further to the right than to the left, I must say when it comes to organizing the party for a common cause, the Republicans are miles behind the Democrats. This fiasco is just more evidence of that. New story number two. U.S. farmers are harvesting what will likely be the country's third largest corn crop ever. The bumper harvest will strain storage capacity and hold down prices of the world's most traded commodity crop. So, investing in corn right now probably is not a good idea, but I'm not an official financial advisor. This will benefit customers who will pay less for corn used to feed livestock, dairy cows, and egg-laying chickens, or to make ethanol biofuel. In addition, it should also help make the price of corn-based foods at the grocer cheaper or at least temporarily inflation-proof. On the other hand, it will squeeze profits for farmers who will store corn and hope for new demand from exports or domestic uses. When the combines have finished harvesting the crop and all the corn has been delivered for customer and exporter needs, the corn left in storage should exceed the amount that has sat in U.S. silos for seven years, according to the U.S. Agricultural Department. There could be 50% more corn in storage when the harvest starts in 2024 than when it started this year, the biggest single-year jump in supplies in nearly two decades. Top exporter Brazil also grew a record amount of corn, and the global corn market now stands on the verge of a surplus for the first time since before the pandemic. Just 16 months ago, corn prices were at their highest in a decade as the war in Ukraine disrupted supplies from the Black Sea region. How will this affect other prices? In theory, at least, the U.S. chicken industry will spend less on corn for poultry feed after years of poor margins and numerous plant closings. So hopefully chicken prices will be lower in the future. Cow Maine Foods the biggest U.S. egg producer said its cost for feed per dozen eggs produced fell 10.5% in the quarter ended September 2, primarily because of lower corn prices. Of course, what's good for the consumer isn't always good for the farmer. Lower prices have dented incomes for corn farmers. Those with space in their grain silos will refrain from selling at a loss this fall and instead store the corn, hoping prices rise. Some may switch to planting more soybeans next spring. In addition, rising interest rates make storing grain a more expensive and risky proposition. Some growers need to take out loans to fund their operations as they wait and hope corn prices will rise again. And farmers also face continuing high costs for the fuel and fertilizer needed to produce their corn. U.S. net farm 
income is expected to fall 23% at the end of this year from last year's record high, which I mentioned in a podcast last year. Well, that's time for a short self-promo. Please remember to like and subscribe to whatever format you listen to this show on, whether it be iHeart, TuneIn, my Buzzsprout connection. Please subscribe and or like. Also, please visit newsfolder19.com. You can click on links to purchase merchandise or otherwise support this podcast. I also want to do a shout out to Danheim, who is the provider of this of the music on this show. Thank you, Danheim. With that, let's get back into the show. New story number three. In the first of two oil stories that conflict with each other, a broad easing of U.S. oil sanctions on Venezuela should eventually expand its output put in could boost profits by returning some foreign companies to its oil fields and providing its crude to a wider set of cash-paying customers. The South American OPEC producer received broad waivers from the U.S. on Wednesday, setting up a six-month window for restarting oil and gas operations that have been severely constrained by ludicrous U.S. sanctions and decades of underinvestment. Well, break out the hammer and chisel and engrave this into a rock somewhere near your home. The U.S. is easing some sanctions. Ah, maybe there is a God. (laughs) Uh, Did the tin men of D.C. finally get a brain? Remember, just a generation or two ago, Venezuela was probably the richest South American country in existence, but not anymore. Rolling back Trump era sanctions, U.S. officials issued general licenses for Venezuela's oil, gas, and mining sectors in response to a deal between Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and the country's opposition on the 2024 presidential election. So, exactly why do we have a say in Venezuela's oil industry anyway? Simple answer... The American empire always intervenes in the affairs of other sovereign nations, including those countries I promise not to mention in this week's podcast. The administration of President Joe Biden has been seeking to boost global oil flows to ease high prices caused by sanctions on Russia and by OPEC output cuts. Let me repeat the key words as it will come up in the next story also. Boost global oil flows to ease high prices. Remember that. Could we not ease high prices by, oh, I don't know, not introducing sanctions to begin with it's almost like telling your kids they can never eat any of their own halloween candy when they just spent three hours ringing doorbells 
PDVSA could make a quick comeback to its traditional oil markets and offer its crude at higher prices after being forced to discount for years. The license could also reduce the company's struggles to raise capital, import rigs, repair refineries, advance projects, and secure relevant partnerships. The sanctions relief authorizes the production, sale, and export of Venezuela's crude and gas while keeping a ban on business with Russia. Again, why do we have any say in another nation's affairs? Again, the answer, we are the tyrant we accuse others of being. Here's the one problem with the easing of these sanctions. It's only a six-month authorization and could be reversed if Maduro does not stick to the electoral pact made with opposition parties. It could also take more than a year for some now idled production and export operations to have an impact on world supplies. So, is it even worth starting up any oil operations that have been idle? Probably not. Here's an idea. Lift the damn sanctions for good. Venezuela has produced an average 780,000 barrels per day of crude so far this year, far from the 2.4 million barrels per day before sanctions began in 2017. Remember that year, it's coming up again. Only one drilling rig is active in the country compared with more than 80 in 2014. So yet, here's another example of the U.S. creating hardship for citizens in other countries. If we quit doing so, maybe Venezuelans wouldn't find it necessary to cross illegally into our country, which would be another problem solved. New story number four. In the second oil-related story, an Alaskan state agency recently sued the Biden administration over its decision to cancel oil and gas leases in the state's North Slope, one of the country's largest reserves of pristine federal land. So on one hand, we lift sanctions, allowing the increase in oil flow to supposedly ease high prices, but we can't issue permits to use our own resources, which would also increase oil flow. Our leaders are idiots. I know the real reason we don't drill there, but that's another story. The lawsuit filed in federal court in Washington, D.C. challenges the U.S. Interior Department's recent decision to scrap seven oil and gas leases in Alaska's 19 million acre Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, an area that is supposedly vulnerable to climate change and home to grizzly and polar bears, snowy owls, and herds of caribou. You know, the same arguments that were used when the pipeline was built turns out that creatures, big and small, sometimes huddle near the pipeline because it provides warmth on 20 below zero days. The Alaska Industrial Development and Export Authority, which held the leases before they were canceled, is asking the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia to restore them 
arguing the federal government's decision violates a clear congressional mandate in a 2017 tax bill to open up the Arctic to drilling. If you didn't catch that, that's the same year when sanctions were put on Venezuela. The Alaskan governor, Mike Dunleavy, stated, quote, The federal government is determined to strip away Alaska's ability to support itself, and we have got to stop it, unquote. Well, maybe Alaska needs to implement a little more financial diversity. No state should be dependent on one industry. The state agency emerged as the sole bidder for most of the acreage after major oil and gas companies chose to skip the sale in 2020. The refuge's coastal plain is estimated to contain up to 11.8 billion barrels of oil. It has no roads, established trails, or other infrastructure. Those factors likely kept interest from drilling companies to a minimum alongside oil market volatility, risk from legal challenges, and political uncertainty about the future of any leases given the pending change in presidential administrations. Or because maybe these companies know the real reason not to drill there. The whole Anwar routine is nothing but a show. The Interior Department justified canceling the seven remaining leases in September by saying the prior administration's lease sale was seriously flawed and failed to consider things like the climate change impacts from oil and gas produced in the North Slope. So, again, let's increase the oil flow on one hand, but impose sanctions on our own states and other mostly ridiculous rules. The real reason we will never drill there? National security. Think it through. With that, don't forget to check out newsfolder19.com for any blogs that I post. Till next week, take care. You know the mantra, question authority, and always be free. <laughs>